Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Peter Mitchell, author of Imperial Nostalgia, How the British Conquered Themselves, which looks at how the memory of empire continues to inflect British culture and politics to this day. We discuss how imperial nostalgia manifests itself in our politics, the role of the Labour Party in supporting these trends, and how the left should respond to emotive calls for a return to a better age. Thank you, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, then support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favorite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Peter Mitchell on what imperial nostalgia really means. Hello and welcome to this episode of A World to Win. And today we are talking to Peter Mitchell about his book, Imperial Nostalgia, How the British Conquered Themselves. How are you doing today, Peter? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So I love the book and I'd really encourage listeners to have a read. It's like I would say quite an easy read, a very well-written book and really very interesting uh, observations that you make throughout. I want to start by just talking a little bit about the term nostalgia. This is a concept that's often used and abused quite a lot in academia. What do you mean by nostalgia in this context? Uh, That's a really fiendish question, actually. Um, (laughs) In this context, I mean, it means a lot of things. I mean, it's a a hugely overdetermined term, obviously. But here it brings together the sense of of longing and mourning for a kind of lost empire, a kind of sense of melancholy, a, a loss that can't quite be acknowledged and that reemerges in encrypted forms. And it also speaks to a kind of a political structure of feeling, a way of relating as a polity to a past or in a kind of a common imaginary that, that kind of harks back to something that supposedly used to exist. But in my reading, it also, and, and, and this is where I draw on writers like Svetlana Boim, it also uh, denotes a certain, uh, a certain relationship to historical time, a certain relationship to pastness, and a way of thinking about the difference between the past and the present. I hope that's not too vague. No, not at all. I think one thing that I was thinking about when I was kind of reading about your uh, your view of nostalgia um, was that there's this interesting kind of tension between nostalgia as remembering and as forgetting. Because it was, I think, Ernst Renan who said that a nation's existence is just as much about kind of a decision to forget certain events, certain traumatic sure, yeah. events, as it is to kind of commemorate others. Mm. So how did you kind of manage that tension between between remembering and forgetting in the context of, you know, obviously British imperialism being really structured around just refusing to acknowledge a lot of the things that um, the events that took place? Well, I mean, I'm not sure how I managed it or whether I managed it, but um, but that kind of that sense of world amnesia as a kind of integral part of how we relate to the imperial past is uh, I think that's 
Yeah, I think what you're saying there is really it's a really good way into thinking about how the amnesia is part of the structure of feeling, how those absences are the presence themselves. I think this is something we see in the ways that, which I'm sure we get onto in a minute, but in the ways that imperial nostalgia and our relationship to the imperial past is is used as a territory on which to fight what we call culture war battles, which are really battles over institutional control and resources and discursive and political power. But when it's used in that way, it's really, I think it's really fascinating to see how a kind of absence of content, a real kind of, there's a real vacuity to what gets mobilized in defense of the empire, a real kind of a refusal to actually engage with anything historically real. And I think that kind of brings together those senses of remembering and forgetting in in quite an interesting way. And I wish I thought of that when I was writing it, to be honest. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, one of the things I suppose to put some kind of some meat on the bones of this is a kind of ongoing issue that we've had in terms of the the records that are stored of Britain's imperial past, which you spent a lot of time digging into, of course. Mm. But recently this came out into the open again because um, there was obviously a decision made during the Britain's kind of colonisation of Kenya with the Mau Mau uprising to destroy a lot of the records of what happened during that uprising. And uh, it was only recently that many of those records were released and it showed that the, the British kind of brutally repressed that uprising and, it, and killed you know, many, many people. And yet that was something that was almost kind of completely overlooked in the media, even though it was obviously quite an, kind of interesting and, yeah, like kind of noteworthy historical event. How do you think we consistently particularly, you know, the British media is consistently so able to kind of avoid discussing or even noting the kind of most traumatic elements of Britain's colonial history. Well, I, I kind of want to problematise that, actually, because uh, I, I sometimes feel we we talk about nothing else, but in a very anxious and, and misdirected and encrypted way. About those missing archives, and Histories of the Hand is a, is a really good book, I think, um, those missing archives from the Mau Mau Rebellion are really interesting in that this kind of this motif of a sudden discovery of archives that were lost is really interesting for how we think about how history is made and how archives work and what the historical record is. Because obviously the way that history is written is through, you know, often through archival materials and the material record of the past. And that always contains absences. It always needs to be read with and against the grain. And it always, you know, there there are always vast lacunae that are based on the distribution of of the power of, you know, speech or representation or or literacy. And the discovery of that dramatic moment where you discover a lost archive kind of gets history off the hook quite a lot, I think. I know it's quite a lot of the coverage around that was like, we didn't know that atrocities were committed back in the 50s during the Mau Mau Rebellion. But now we do because we found the papers. And it's like, no, we we knew. We just didn't have these particular papers. So in a way, those really egregious acts of historical silencing, I think often can distract from the kind of wider processes of silencing that happen in the way history is written more, more widely. As for how this relates to our discussion of the really traumatic parts of, um, of of British imperialism, I mean, I can't open a copy of the Times, the Spectator, the Telegraph or the Mail without seeing the word slavery uh, several times per day. 
these things are constantly discussed, constantly in contention. But again, we come back to that idea that, you know, there's remembering and there's forgetting. The word slavery, nine times out of 10, I'm sure if you did a kind of corpus analysis of this, is embedded in a sentence that's about how it doesn't matter or it's not real or other people did it. There's a kind of a really anxious denial going on. And in a way, you know, there's there's a sense in which this particular discourse is, is really is really compulsive. Uh, some people just can't talk about anything else. So yeah, I mean I mean not not to do down your question, but I but I think we we do talk about this stuff a lot, but it's often it's often very absent even as it's most present, if that makes sense. I want to move on now just to talking a little bit about this term empire because there's, there's many different ways of, of conceptualizing it. And I, you know, as a Marxist, have a relatively different understanding of empire as something that isn't just a kind of formal process of colonialism, but as actually sure. a mechanism of value transfer that kind of mm-hmm. continues to this day. How did you understand the idea of empire? And just this kind of general question of how imperial nostalgia inflects our politics today, not just in terms of Brexit, but also just the daily interventions of all of our political parties. I mean, it takes place on several levels, doesn't it? There's the uh, there's there's the kind of there's the open level on which we are actually discussing in Parliament what universities are teaching about the empire, what happened in a common room in Magdalen College, Oxford this past week. You know, every week there is a there is a kind of like confected news story that's a moral panic about students taking down a picture of the Queen or being rude about Churchill. You know, Nigel Biggers got given an MBE. Um, his his case was mentioned in in Parliament that he'd had his free speech suppressed by a, by a woke mob of actual imperial historians. This stuff, you know, is it's being used as a battlefield on which to fight these larger fights that I'm talking about about you know about institutional power and and, uh, and political power. But at the same time, there are there is the whole kind of tradition of imperial thinking and imperial structures and ways of looking at things so you know i've got a chapter in this book about how the late 19th century's ways of theorizing race and territoriality and thinking about subject populations were applied to the you know to the industrializing regions of britain and to the celtic fringe of ireland wales and scotland and uh, and seeing how that persists in and it's being reactivated in some ways in modern discourses about say the red wall or the nations um and and about you know about the cl- about class basically how are, how are how are people who are i don't want to say working class but how are people who are not us not the implied speaker or reader how are people who are not you know properly white how do race and class map together there how do those imaginaries intersect on other levels, I mean, you know, there's a whole there's a whole culture of actually talking and thinking about the empire in this country. You know, Merchant Ivory films, the the kind of extraordinary industry of popular history that we have, which is really dominated by certain kinds of voices. And uh, I, th- I think you know this all needs to be thought through, but it's it's a culture wide phenomenon, and it's really hard to cover in about sixty thousand words. And you do a very good job of uh, of looking at it from from very different perspectives and in a in a kind of yeah curious and um an eloquent way um but i'm kind of wondering here to what extent you know is is the thesis of your book really that we can just kind of trace all of the the culture war stuff if that's the right word to use which it obviously isn't um that we're seeing kind of you know colonize our politics today um 
to coin a phrase. Uh, to what extent can that just be traced back to the fact of Britain as an imperial power and the ongoing exercise of that imperial power? Oh, hell no, not at all. Um, it's just a small part of it. Um, I mean, obviously, what what we're, we're both agreeing that we'd rather not call the culture war, but don't currently have a better word for here. Um, I mean, what that is, is an attempt to manufacture consent for, as I see it, a transition to a kind of Orbanite managed democracy of authoritarian ethno-nationalism, in which the ruling party is is coterminous with the state, as the you know, as the British Conservative Party always kind of has been anyway. The stakes are obviously very different, and they're not really to do with whether or not we had an empire. It just so happens that empire is our is our foundational myth of greatness. It's it's our Kosovo Polya, it's our Greater Hungary, it's it's our third Rome for Moscow, it's it's our kind of moment of greatest triumph and moment of greatest humiliation. It's it's the kind of repository for all the kind of affects and the weird compensations that make up the kind of like the emotional landscape of, of reactionary nationalism. Um, so in a lot of ways, you know, just like a lot of these fights that actually happen supposedly about the empire, this isn't really about the empire. It's about the forms of British and specifically English nationalism. I mean, obviously, you know, the question of empire, these kind of hot button, inverted commas, culture war issues haven't left the agenda entirely, but they seem to have really vigorously reasserted themselves in the period since the financial crisis. Do you have a read as to why that is the case? I guess I guess the short answer is it's it's the rise of the uh, global far right, isn't it? And <laughs> It's infiltration of governments. That's it. It's the current wave of reaction and the ways in which it's... Uh, in which it's really dramatically tied into issues of race and class and coloniality in its new and old forms. Um, I mean, the footnote that I could put at the every at, at the bottom of every page of this book is it's Nazis, stupid. What I'm really writing against here is, you know, I'm I'm trying to talk about a structure of feeling, about a culture of imperiality and empireness. I'm trying to talk about a kind of a certain affective landscape. But uh, what it comes down to is uh, I'm really terrified about Nazis. And when I read about, say, Nigel Bigger's, I'm sorry to return to Nigel Bigger, but I do have a whole chapter on him. When I returned to, when I read about his case being brought up in Parliament, you know, I could look over the page and see what was happening in the Napier barracks. And I don't personally need convincing that those two things are intimately connected, that these attempts to wage certain cultural campaigns to have a go at students or to or to police discourses, to police curricula, aren't intimately connected to the capacity to do violence to the bodies of others and to redefine citizenship as a privilege rather than a right, and to undo the international regime of human rights, fragile and problematic as it is, and to undermine the rule of law. Like, uh, obviously, the whole issue of how we think about empire is is massive, and in many ways, it's it's quite fun and quite nice to engage with because you know historical imaginaries are. But what concerns me now is is its use to rapidly consolidating far right. Sorry, that's not that's not a very happy answer. But uh... it's, no, it's, I mean it's not, and I kind of want to just press this slightly more because we can just go back one step again and, and kind of interrogate why we're seeing such a resurgence in in the power of the far right. And I mean, you can look at this from either a kind of top down or a bottom up way. So, from a bottom up way, you know, why is it that far right motifs and talking points seem to be 
so much more resonant with people today than they might have been, say, kind of 20 years ago? And equally, why is conservative ideology, which, you know, bear in mind in kind of the the long 90s and the early noughties, was much more kind of focused around in inverted commas, free market, which actually had very little to do with the free market. Mm. It was all about kind of globalization and opening up the world and this kind of triumphant, triumphalist millenarian narrative about the fall of, of socialism and how yeah. the rest of the world was going to catch up with, uh, with the global north. How was that suddenly changed so that now, you know, most conservative parties, particularly around Europe, seem to rely much more on ethno-nationalism and, and xenophobia than they do on those other elements of, of conservatism that we might ordinarily associate with neoliberalism? I mean, again, there are many people who could answer this far better than me and at far greater length. But, you know, I, th- I think it's the usual combination of, of opportunism, desperation, a shore up uh, an obviously tottering uh, world system. Mm. And, and you know, the, the capitulation of the left, first the defeat mm. of the left, and then it's absolute capitulation through the third way. Um, I mean, watching... Uh, the Labour rights responses to the Batley and Spend by election mm. it was, was absolutely, uh, it was extremely dispiriting in the way that like, how you do politics is you either do rank utopianism, which is disgusting, or you throw Muslims under the bus. It's one or the other. And basically, I, th- I think seeing the left really, really failing to defend internationalism and cosmopolitanism and capitulating to the agenda of of a press and of a public sphere that, you know, is, is dominated by people for whom ethno-nationalism is, if not something they believe in, then then certainly something they find convenient for now. I don't believe for a second mm. that, um, that Boris Johnson's really an ethno-nationalist. Mm. I think he's, he's, uh, he's just an opportunist and ethno-nationalism is the flavour of the minute. You started speaking about it there, but I mean, how do you think that the left and progressives in general should respond to this what you call imperial nostalgia, which, as you say, perhaps has less to do with empire and is more about propping up support for this, mm. um, you know, basically kind of the one-party state that we we seem to be living under at the moment, without falling into the trap of constantly being on the defence, which obviously in politics is a position from which you're already losing, and also yeah. not avoiding the questions. What is the kind of positive message that can be spun out of the position that we find ourselves in today for progressives, which is a huge question, by the way. But um, yes, so, you know, no need to kind of give a, to give an extension. <laughs> of that, but interested in how you think we should be? We should be talking about this stuff. I mean, this encompasses everything, and it's not just about it's not just about people who self-define as the left or progressives, and it's not just about the spaces you organise in or your you know your your group of schools or whatever. This stuff is really dependent on understanding how how popular memory is made and understanding how people experience the past. Like I said, um, I work in heritage now. I've been working for the past three years uh, collecting oral history interviews of people's memories of the NHS, which has been really fascinating even before COVID. And that's a really fascinating thing to study because you're engaging with really most people's most intimate contact with the welfare state in their entire lives. Most people in this country are born and die in an NHS hospital. It's the most intimate relationship with the state in in a very real sense. And it also is the point at which kind of personal lived experience of individuals often rubs up in complex ways against communal and national myth because the NHS is our our other great kind of 
our the great source of exceptionalist myth apart from the empire. It's what makes us special as a nation. If we have a sense of our exceptionality as a society, it's it's based on the NHS now, if it's not based on race. And seeing how this works inside people's experiences when you talk to them for two or three hours or more, you realise how complex and internally contradictory and impossibly complexly mediated people's relationships to imaginaries of the past or to their own past, to squaring experience and myth. And I think taking that kind of more anthropological approach to how people experience the past is has got to be the very basis of how we start resetting our relationship to it. Um, this also involves teaching, pedagogy, education. It's desperately important that we... Um, that we make people historiographically literate. So, so many of the arguments of imperial nostalgia, so, you know, it's an industry, and so many of the arguments of, say, free, free speech activists and, you know, the whole kind of, the whole discourse mill of the reactionary right, so much of their stuff is based on counting on people not being literate in how discourse and ideology are made, counting on people not really having a sense of what politics is counting on them not knowing that power is unevenly distributed and that we don't all live in a seminar room and that you can't do something like a balance sheet about historical phenomenon that lasted for 300 years or indeed any historical phenomenon it also crucially and this this is where it comes down to this is where it comes down to left and progressive people self-defined um what we have to do and what historians have to do as well is to not engage with the terms of the debate as it's set by the reactionary discourse mill. You mm, you can't yeah. debate Andrew Doyle about free speech. You can't debate Matt Goodwin about the Red Wall. And you can't debate Nigel Bigger about the empire because there's nothing there to debate. There's that big absence we were talking about earlier. Like, it's a huge forgetting. I could argue with, say, I was just rereading before this interview, Nigel Bigger's nine-part article in Standpoint magazine about whether you could definitely call Cecil Rhodes a racist based on whether he can be proved to have used the N-word. Like, did he personally use the N-word? Did he have a personal animosity towards black folks? We can't prove it. Therefore, Cecil Rhodes wasn't a racist. And there's just nothing you can do with that. There's no, it's it's completely incommensurable with any any kind of sensible historical investigation. So what we have to do with all this stuff is not to engage with its terms, but to talk past it to its intended audience and explain what it's trying to do. And I mean, in this book, as as is probably clear to you by now, I'm not I'm not great at theory. I'm not very well read in politics, economics, etc. The only thing I'm kind of any good at is looking at a thing and trying to explain what it is and trying to read it and kind of and explicate it and draw it out. Which is why I say when I write about Nigel Bigger or about the discourse of the Red Wall, I don't engage with those things. I try to see them in context and say, you know, what fantasies do they activate? What are these things trying to make people feel? Like mm. what anxieties, what kind of affective compensations is this is this trying to kick off in you what are you scared of when you put this newspaper down and I think that's really the only grounds on which to address it I also think and as a kind of corollary of that is uh is that we just absolutely can't give up the terms of debate to any of these people like 
it's really important not to, and this is something I've always believed about, say, about race, matters of race and nationality, is you have to make your own discourse. The discourse mm. is, is, is poisoned. There's no way, uh, like, there's no point in going to people, yeah, I understand your legitimate concerns. I understand you feel sad. It's like, you do have to talk to people. We can't go around calling people out. Most politics gets made at the dinner table and in front of mm. the telly. Um, politics happens in communities and families in, in the pub. This is this is how people form their kind of political life worlds. But that doesn't mean we don't have to take charge of the discourse as if we owned it, which we currently don't, because the right's never been scared of doing that. I think what you've just said kind of completely encapsulates both the problem and part of the solution, which is just this question of how we take these ideas and make them felt because what you said, you said something like, you know, I'm not very good at ideas. I just kind of am good at understanding the way that people make sense of the world, but actually that's really the only thing that matters. And I'm sure there are a lot of people on the left who think of themselves as, you know, very good with ideas, like, you know, very capable at discussing theory and all these sorts of things. And, you know, I speak to a lot of them, but ultimately you can be as theoretically or empirically accurate as you want. And if you don't have the capacity to speak about your ideas in a way that, makes them felt they're worse than useless mm. because actually if you look at the way you know if I, I think about it, it's not just that the problem is not just on the left that we've decided collectively to ignore or talk past um issues around race and empire and you know all those sorts of things it's actually often that when we do talk about them we talk about them in a kind of individualistic way that takes for granted the terms that are used by the right and just throws them on their heads. Absolutely, so rather yeah. than having a debate about like, you know, institutional racism, we end up being drawn into a debate about, debate about like whether or not people are racist to Meghan Markle. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Like, blitz the population down the middle 50-50, it's dinner table conversation and it does nothing for anyone. So how do yeah. we how do we escape that? We just have to, you know, for forge our own language and uh, and speak as if we were confident and as, as if we had the right to do it. It is a bit like that individualizing thing is is really important when when you're engaging with this cultural stuff, which obviously none of us should have to. But I've just been doing it for a year and a half, and and my my brain's porridge now. You know, you look at say a figure like say Mark Goodwin or Eric Kaufman, and if you call them a racist, you're going to get sued going to be like they're going to mm. they're going to say but i have how dare you assume i'm a racist i have never had an uncharitable thought about a non-white person in my life say so, well actually let's redefine racist not as the state of someone's soul or the state of their virtue that's you know that's between them and the bathroom mirror how about we define racist as a profession someone who's a practitioner <laughs> of race someone who makes race happen and kind of you know and perfects its discourses and enables it to penetrate the public sphere as a destructive force. Maybe you could be a racist in the same way that you could be a pianist. <laughs> and that, that would work a lot, a lot better for me, I think. And I think that would also be the kind of that flip change in people's thought into thinking, thinking politically, thinking ideologically, something that, you know, 30 years of the defeat and capitulation of the left has really removed from the public sphere as a viable discourse. That is absolutely so true. I couldn't agree more. Just that point around, um, you know, encouraging people to think what I suppose you might call critically, which is rather than kind of taking for granted the terms of the debate as they're put forward, actually asking questions like, well, who is benefiting from the question being posed in this way? Yeah. But that is very, very difficult. And it's not just difficult to do in 
kind of mainstream public debate. It's difficult to do even within academia. And this comes back to another question that I was going to ask you, which is you write a lot about why the these kind of issues are so prevalent within academia. And, you know, many of the people that you've mentioned already are academics or mm. professors or whatever. Why do you think this has become such a kind of critical issue within the British Academy recently? And what kind of forms of pedagogy do we have access to that would speak to what you're saying, kind of push this mode of thinking and reasoning that is much more critical, much more ideological, and kind of create the kinds of people who would question these things? I'm not sure that the problem is really in universities so much as I think any intervention would be more valuably made in schools and colleges than universities, to be honest. I I mean, I don't I don't know higher education that well, although I nominally work in it. The salience of of empire in stuff that's happening in the academy right now, I think, is less to do with empire itself, although obviously, you know, it's a convenient convergence. It's because there's, you know, this particular moment features a massive attack on the academy uh, in general and empires, you know, the, the locally very convenient means by which to prosecute it. If you want to manufacture a threat to whiteness and indigeneity from inside uh, from inside the place where intellectuals are made, then you know empire is perfect. I mean, what you could change would be, I think you know, however it's done, uh, critical thinking is the most important thing. I also think you know this country could definitely do with proper civics classes, which include stuff about mm. the role of the, which, which just educate people about the role of the media. Cause going straight from high school as it is to reading the mail is not going to do anyone's brain any favors. And I, I mean, you know, keeping, keeping, keeping Michael Gove's sticky fingers out of education would be a really good mm. start. I think we just essentially that historical literacy has to be that, sorry, historiographical literacy, that critical literacy, that way of, of being able to think critically about things and how they are made is something that needs to be inculcated through education. And I haven't really done any thinking about how that would happen. That is well out of my wheelhouse, I'm afraid. I I know what you mean. And obviously it's a big question. I'm just, you know, when I think back to um, say someone like, you know, my granddad who would have gone through a, a similar sort of education system as the one we have today, which would have taught nothing about empire or colonialism. But because he was a communist um, right. and part of the trade union movement and, you know, part of a working class movement that prioritised political education and very big P political education, he had an awareness of these issues. And the same could be said, I think, for a lot of kind of great organic intellectuals of the working class in Britain mm-hmm. and around the world. And I'm just kind of wondering... You know, maybe this is again kind of too much practice and and uh, and outside of the the questions that you're interrogating in the book. But it seems to me so important that we think about in the spaces that we're creating as activists how we encourage these kind of different forms of thinking and actually promote that kind of political education that creates questioning subjects. Yeah, I mean, if you're uh, if you're suggesting that we um that we revive the WEA and, and the plebs, plebs League properly and, uh, and pump loads and loads of money into workers' education and uh, political education for everyone and lifetime education and lifetime learning. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'll take okay. that. That's, That's the answer to the question. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. I'll have it. Thanks. <laughs> 
So there are sections in the book in which you discuss, um, and this is a quote from a book, how imperial masculinities inform the codes of behavior of the British ruling class with reference to some particular individuals. I thought that was particularly interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that plays out? That, um, I mean, that came basically from me accidentally reading uh, Rory Stewart's book, The Places in Between, and also from a lifetime engagement with uh, the adventure fiction of John Buchan, which I not without reservations, obviously, but basically unreservedly love. I just found it really interesting over the past few years that particular particular figures have been thrown up. And again, we should look past the individual to, you know, the structural reasons why these figures are suddenly kind of suddenly seem to encapsulate or be the repository for quite a lot of uh, intense feeling. Um, but watching figures like, say, Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Rory Stewart, although he's obviously in a slightly different kind of class from them, um, as it were, watching them kind of perform this weird, almost drag-like kind of like this, it's 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 a kind of pantomimic kind of version of, of Toriness and realising that, you know, when, when, when the Tory party, you know, kind of is... As it always is, it's on its uppers. We all, you know, the national crisis is the crisis of the Tory party in a lot of ways. But when it has nothing left and it's attempting to just, you know, go for broke and take everything, it's the line of defence it has, it's, it's, its front is this amazing, just laughable, but kind of wonderful performance of class, which is really bound up with certain kinds of masculinity, especially public school ones. Um, certain kinds of certain kinds of gender indeterminacy as well, and it's so deeply implicated with that history of imperial adventuring, with people like Lawrence of Arabia, Patrick Lee Fermer, Francis Young husband. It's it's so bound up with the ways of being a man that were invented in the nineteenth century um, in the colonial field. And uh, I just, I just found that interesting and funny. It's fun to write about, basically. Yeah, it is, and it's a really interesting part of the book, actually. Um, and, and what about this idea of the kind of white working class, uh, as opposed to you know the particular ways of being of the ruling class? How has that also been formed through this uh, concept of imperial nostalgia? Well, I mean, it's not really been formed through imperial nostalgia so much as you know, obviously, when we, whoever we are, it's it's not me, talk about the white working class. That does, as as I as I demonstrate in one of my chapters, it does kind of draw on certain scripts of, you know, as, as I said earlier, thinking about race and territoriality and subject populations and the kind of the anxieties surrounding immigration and racial degeneration that attended uh, industrialization and the period after. And the white working class is something that is often kind of like in reactionary discourse at the minute is often kind of given in some way it's it's bestowed with a nostalgia for empire by its supposed uh, its supposed champions you know they'll be like well people are proud of their empire so yeah well you know the laid off steel workers of redco have been cancelled by the work academy just for defending Cecil roads like i mean they haven't although you know the the ways in which people do feel patriotism, do feel a sense of national belonging, do involve empire. They do involve imperial service, just as they involve military service. And the way that's been hijacked by reaction, and, you know, always has been, but especially now in particularly crude, but quite effective because they're very relentless ways, 
is something that would probably have been obvious to anyone who was canvassing for the Labour Party in 2019. I do think that one thing we need to deal with, one thing we should be very careful about if we're progressive or on the left or whatever you want to call it, in dealing with the structures of feeling around imperial nostalgia is that for many people, the empire is still a real presence. And those aren't the descendants of its nominal victims, although obviously, in, as in all empires, the line between victim and perpetrator is, is generally extremely blurred. There are, you know, plenty, basically what I'm saying is plenty of white people have memories of empire. They have memories of service and often of suffering on its behalf. I remember a maths teacher in my high school who was not a particularly nice bloke, but he would tell us stories about um, fighting in the Malayan insurgency. And he, he said that if you got a piano wire, you could uh, you could cut a man's neck down to the bone. And that he'd done that. And he was clearly quite a traumatised guy who'd uh, who'd done really bad things and had you know been in danger of having really bad things done to him. He'd been in a war. It was vile. It was horrible for him. And empire, obviously you couldn't really approach someone like that and say, you're wrong to feel the way you do about the empire. You're dealing with someone who's who's just as much a victim of it as anyone else, but also a beneficiary in the way that some people aren't. And I feel the same actually when uh, it's it's easy to mock boomers for apparently believing they fought in the Second World War. But if you were, if you were born in 1945 or 1946, you did grow up under the shadow of that war. You grew up with parents who were traumatised. You grew up literally in its ruins in most cities in the UK. Um, you grew up in the world it made. The war is a, is a real presence. It's a, it's kind of the animating force of your life. It's, it's very absence makes it more present in a lot of ways, I think, for people born in that generation. And we really, and we really shouldn't mock people for that. We can, you know, we can, we can have a laugh and we can, you know, give really passionate critique to the ways that it's, that it's instrumentalized and mobilized on behalf of the worst politics. But, uh, but for someone born in 1946 to have very strong feelings about Churchill doesn't seem at all strange to me. But I think this is the, the most interesting point, and it speaks to you know the, the central thesis of your book, which is why was that trauma um, coded into a worldview which doesn't look back to the horror of war? or to yeah. the kind of great poetry that's produced in the wake of the Second World War that says, you know, make sure that this mm. stuff never happens again, but instead becomes transformed into a worldview which is about the glorification of war. I don't know. And to be honest, I don't, I don't know if it's that simple. I rather think that, you know, like quite a lot of our national pride about, about not winning but being on the winning side of the Second World War isn't completely unjustified in quite a lot of ways. I really changed, changed my opinions about this after spending time in Russia, where, you know, the Great Patriotic War is part of a, a national mythology, which is obviously used for the most appalling political ends and always has been. But given what they lost, given what they endured, mm. you wouldn't tell a Russian to uh, rethink whether it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you wouldn't, or rather, to, to finesse that, you wouldn't risk a Russian thinking that you were telling them that. Um <laughs> It's really easy to find yourself in a position of saying, we just have to throw the whole lot out. And there's a baby in bathwater problem mm. where, you know, people do need, sorry, the, I've 
I'm trying not to say people do need communal myths, yes, because they're very simple people. But they're going to have them. I mean, okay, so it's a, you know, it's a question of actually yeah. how we're we're working with them rather than just saying don't yeah. believe these things. Ex- yeah. Exactly, like a commu- communal myth and memory and magic is is extremely important to all of us, uh, mm. and uh, and and we need to you know we have to not reclaim myths, but you know make make myths work for us um, because yeah. they are how we experience life and they're how we experience history. If that makes sense, I mean, you know, Absolutely, I got yeah. I got quite dismayed by the by the kind of sepia nostalgism surrounding 1945 to 1948 around the time of, of early Corbynism with you know like Spirit of 45 that Mike Lee film. And it's like mm. you can't actually win an election by fighting 1945's election, can you? Um, mm. You can't you can't win an election with dancing nurses and old style costumes. Like nostalgia is a dead end in political terms. But there are ways to reactivate the past to make a narrative that works for the future. So that's really vague, but I think it's the best I can do. It's not. It's I, it actually brings me to, to my next question, um, which is about the Labour Party um, and how right, yeah. the Labour Party's identity is tied up with this imperial nostalgia. So whether that's kind of going all the way back to its its active involvement in the imperial project itself or yeah. through to kind of Keir Starmer's gleeful flag waving today. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'd, I'd happily never think about the Labour Party ever again in my life. But um, I I think, you know, we, we do have a really a horribly tortured and ambivalent relationship to empire in the party. And it's something we should really sort out. But in a way, it's also maybe something we should bypass. You don't you don't need a position on the national past. What you need a position on is memory laws is education is how we commemorate things is how we how we try to legislate a culture of memory that isn't toxic and that isn't that doesn't tend towards ethno-nationalism and obviously I, I don't see the Labour Party doing anything about that at the minute I mean I, I was um I was really um encouraged by the Corbyn by by the Corbynite manifesto of 2019 when it said mm. you know we are going to start teaching and thinking critically about empire because these these are the intervention interventions you can make on a legislative level these are the things you can actually change not to kind of institute an official discourse which says one thing about the national past but to give people the structural tools to make a, a better culture of remembering and there's no perfect culture of remembering they're all bad mm. you know <laughs> but uh but they're necessary and um you know, these these are things you can do politically if you have the will. Um, they are difficult to do. I think, you know, G- Germany is a brilliant example of, of, you know, how these things can kind of go all right and go wrong and kind of arrive at, at compromises that please no one, but do the sometimes do the least harm possible given the situation. I think that's something we can do. But it would take commitment and it takes and it would take a commitment on the part of the Labour Party, as with all things involving, say, especially race and memory and belonging, mm. it would take a commitment to respecting people enough to say you disagree with them, rather than, you know, walking around the imaginary white man from Hartlepool that someone's invented for you um, and kind of poking him and going, what does he want? What can I say? Oh, yes, I'm a racist tool, don't you know? There has to be a way of saying, look, if you respect people, you don't talk down to them. And if you disagree, you say you disagree and you try to convince them, you try to persuade them because that's the point of politics. That's the point of education. 
One of the things that I found really interesting um, in the book was the observation you made about the link between imperial nostalgia and the modern phenomenon of, of conspiracism. Can you talk oh, yeah. a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, this is where it gets into the territory of, of being in danger of applying psychoanalytic stuff while being very, very unqualified to do so. Um, and also psychoanalyzing a nation or a people, which is which is obviously not something I think you should really do. But um, I mean, the structure of nostalgia is inherently paranoiac. I think you know it, it supposes the kind of the feeling of nostalgia. Let me formulate this. So it kind of supposes that there's a transcendent truth behind the visible. There's you know there's there's another world in which things make sense in which things fit together you know this is a fallen world and a chaotic one but beyond it is something else and to the nostalgic imagination that's an imagined past which has no past which is extra historical it it doesn't exist in time in the same way that the present does and uh, and paranoia does the same thing you know it says look you can only perceive a chaos but there's an order behind it and I think that's kind of why, I mean, that, that's really helpful to, to reaction in that the nostalgic imagination's kind of perception of an order beyond the visible could articulate and, and kind of like, and kind of interact really, really intimately with paranoia. And obviously because because nostalgia deals with the sense that the present is a fallen world. If you want to think that, you know, here was our moment of greatness, which in this case involves white supremacist domination. The fallen world now is one in which fifth columnist elites are inviting immigrants to destroy our culture and language and people, which is why I think, you know, I I think the the discourse mongers of the right who've managed to bring together imperial nostalgia and a, or if not imperial nostalgia, then a moral panic that empire is being traduced. The way they've managed to integrate that with an increasingly strident and increasingly explicit replacement theory is, um, is really interesting. Like they've, they've really hit on a, on a very happy convergence there. I think it's, it's, it's really powerful. Thank you so much, uh, Peter Mitchell, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was a fascinating conversation, and I will put a link to Peter's book in the description for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Great. Thank you. Thank you.